Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, we're one week into the Ontario election campaign and leaders have dropped their platforms. Who has the strongest message and it's resonating with the voters? Well, we'll find out. We're also heading into the 11th week of the war between Russia and Ukraine. Oral Brown, professor of international relations and a senior member of the Mug School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto will join us to talk about what's going on there. And as cost of living continues to soar, what realistic actions can really be taken by government to lower those costs? Good question. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The number one issue in this provincial election, it's not COVID. No, it's not the pandemic. It's not health care. It's cost of living, to the surprise of nobody, really. And, uh, well, you know, it's a very short election. I mean, June 2nd is voting day. So, I mean, the party leaders are going to have to catch on to that pretty quickly. And they're going to be doing that a little bit later on today. As uh, Emily Joveski reports, all four main Ontario party leaders are in North Bay today for a debate on issues that affect residents of northern Ontario. Progressive Conservative leader Doug Ford has been up north for several days, touting commitments he's made to restore northern passenger rail service, build Highway 101 through Timmins, and continue work to build road infrastructure to the Ring of Fire. NDP leader Andrea Horvath released her northern platform yesterday, including promises to reimburse medical travel expenses more quickly, add more local health centres, and immediately hire 300 doctors in the region. Liberal leader Stephen Del Duca says he'll be releasing his northern platform details today. Green Party leader Mike Schreiner is also set to participate in the debate. Emily Javesky, The Canadian Press. Well, when you get into election campaigns, uh, an awful lot of the time, of course, what they're saying is very important. We need to follow the policies and the initiatives that they're, they're talking about and what they want to enact, in fact, if they form government. But just as important, I think, in many people's minds is, is how those issues are presented and how those policies are presented. It's kind of marketing, right? I mean, they're, they're basically saying, buy my product. You know, this is the way I'm going to govern Ontario. So how are they doing in that? And we're talking about marketing here and analysis. Uh, to get some expertise on this, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program Dr. Joanne McNeish. Uh, Dr. McNeish is an associate professor of marketing with Toronto Metropolitan University. Doctor, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for the time today. Thank you, Bill. Glad to be back. The medium is the message. The message is the medium. I, I, I could go into Marshall McLuhan here if we want, but the, the reality here is, uh, as I was mentioning in my uh, preamble, how you get your message across is very, very important, I think, especially in a short election period like this, isn't it? Yeah, and, and in fact, just to remind everybody, of course, with the advanced polls available, and in Ontario, a lot of people choose the advanced polls, mm-hmm. it's even a shorter campaign. So you mentioned coming off the top, the key issue is affordability. And I think if anyone's doing a great job and staying completely focused on affordability, uh, it is uh, Doug Ford and the progressive conservatives. Um, Other people are laying out more intellectual platforms and talking about what they're going to do in the future. I noticed that all of uh, what Doug Ford is doing is here I am at this place doing my role as premier. Here's what I'm going to give you today. And so while uh, we've just seen the public poll that says it's affordability, it looks like he uh, had understood that for a while and is really focusing on that. It's not that the other candidates are not trying to allude to that, but they're talking about fixing a broken system or our competitor broke the system or in the case of the Green Party and, and they don't have a chance. So we'll set them aside except for this point. 
they're completely focused on their vision, which is around green. And unfortunately, a lot of the work around green, voters who are also consumers associate green products with more expensive. And so I think where the green is really going to lose from a marketing point of view is their product is associated with higher cost or more taxes. Well, I, I think the double whammy there, Joanne, is, and, and I don't disagree with you, but the perception that some people might have about going green, the cost of living is, uh, you know, right off the charts right now. Yeah. I'm sure a lot of, uh, of voters are going to look at that and say, we can't afford that now, especially now. Might have been able to give it a shot if things were a little more economically viable, but they're not right now. Uh, we're worried about, you know, getting groceries and putting them on the table, and we're worried about how we're going to get to work. We've really shifted our focus in the last, I guess, two or three months, haven't we? Right. And it, but in fact, one of the last times we spoke, we actually talked about the way that Doug Ford is handing out little tiny incentives. So, for example, everybody got money back or most many people got money back for their license tag. And so that instantly hits the issue of here's cash in your pocket to spend in terms of the economy. Some of his recent discussion has been around uh, the fact that there are everybody's looking for uh, employees. And so he's owning the fact that he's created a situation that's taken him when he took power from there weren't enough jobs available to look at all the jobs that I've created. So he's literally spinning the, the, the sort of period of COVID to his advantage in terms of what he's accomplished. So he's doing a couple of things from a marketing point of view. So if he were uh, a market leader or what we call a brand leader, he'd be talking about all the benefits and uh, a great the things that have made him such a great brand. And that's literally what he's talking about. He's talking about what he's going to continue to do for you and the other parties then by contrast. So if we think of other parties as Pepsi and ginger ale, uh, they're talking about the fact, well, he keeps promising to do those things, but he didn't do it. Didn't we just discover the following things are broken? Healthcare system, nursing homes. Oh, Doug is talking about building more uh, roads. The, the thing that this market leader is doing, uh, the, uh, Doug Ford, is that he's talking, they, they're criticizing him for, for talking about roads. But his base, which is outside of Toronto, it's everybody else where he's leading and everywhere else but Toronto, drives on those roads. And in fact, sitting in traffic for two hours is their issue because it relates to cost of living and the price of gas. So he seems to understand that central theme better than the others. And he, he truly is taking a leadership position and he appears to be dominating uh, the non-traditional media. So on the news, people are news programs. They're trying to equal to give at least the three major parties equal time in the stories. Whereas on social media, Doug Ford's YouTube channel, his social media, everything comes up right away. In other words, he's really uh, making an effort to dominate uh, the non-traditional media. Which, again, as a market leader, that's what you're capable of doing because you've got the cash to do so. But it really puts the other two brands or parties at a disadvantage. I mean, a couple of things about that. You made the point a couple of minutes ago, too, Joanne, that, uh, you know, the, the Ford team seems to have anticipated this. I mean, we just want to remind our listeners that these parties do their polling well before the election is mm -hmm. called. I mean, this is, this is not a news yeah. story to them that uh, cost of living and affordability is, is going to be the main issue. They anticipate yeah. that, and they've obviously geared their program to that. But you touched about some of the stuff that Ford has done here, the, the license rebates, uh, and, you know, going to build more roads, uh, et cetera, et cetera. 
he seems to be focusing an awful lot, as you say, on commuters, on people that do own vehicles. And by the way, we should also throw in, I guess, their commitment now to, to building EVs and, and yep. that, that sort of thing, too. Given the fact that, as we talked about on the program a couple of days ago, most of the votes, most of the seats in the Ontario legislature are in the GTA, G- GTAHA. If from Oshawa all the way around the bend there, Kitchener-Waterloo, you include in that as well. Is focusing on commuters and, and people that own cars that, that have to get in their car and go to work all the time, is that a wise strategy? Is that a strategy that may attract more voters in those areas, those voter-rich areas? So one thing that the, the mistake a leading brand can make is they forget to talk clearly to their existing customers. Uh, the Progressive Conservative Party, and they're using Doug Ford. It, it really is the Doug Ford uh, political party. The other parties are focusing on, each, you know, the Liberal and the New Democrats. In this case, they're using Doug. Doug gets it done. So they are talking to their base. They're talking to the people that are committed to vo- voting for them. I think of the truckers that went to Ottawa. He's talking to them. Because remember, when we drive on the roads, we're not just talking to commuters, we're talking to business people and truckers. And when we think of supply chain issues, he's saying, let me help you deal with that. He's in the car plants. So he's very much focused on a business agenda, and that's certainly a conservative agenda. So my feeling is, the, the I think the difference between a minority and majority government is exactly what you said, is going to be done by the uh, uh, city of Toronto or the, the greater municipality of uh, Toronto. That'll be where that decision is made. But in terms of who forms the, the government, the majority, I think, I think right now there would have to be an enormous misstep. And one of the interesting things about having somewhat of a negative image, so there are people who are going to come as a surprise to you, uh, Bill. Some people don't like Doug Ford at all. No, uh, you're kidding. I well, know, actually, he's, I know it's, he's polling. He's polling below his party's popularity, isn't he, Joanne? Uh, right. But the advantage to that is that he can make mistakes and people just say, yeah, that, that meets my expectation. One of the mis- big, mis- big, big problems a brand can make is if you don't meet their expectations, that's more serious than doing the wrong thing. So, in fact, he or his party could make mistakes and people would just say, yeah, that's just Doug Ford. They will actually, it will have no effect on his campaign. So the implication of that, though, is for the liberals and new Democrats, which don't have as strong a negative connotation, is if they stumble, if they make a mistake, it will have a much more serious impact on the campaign. So knowing all of that, that means the Conservatives just need to stay the course, focus on Doug. Those that are going to vote for Doug will vote for Doug. They actually are unconcerned about the, and he used to call us the liberal elite in downtown Toronto, even though he drives, he likes to drive on our roads. But um, he uh, doesn't need to worry about them because the only difference they're going to make is get a majority, a strong majority, or a weak majority, or a minority government. That's the difference they're going to make. So they will probably target specific areas on the chance they could win them. But I I, I think that they're running a strong, appropriate campaign for a leader, especially coming out of COVID when everyone is, uh, I think, exhausted. If, if I hear one more person say, oh, could we be over COVID? You get that feeling of just... Mm. Let's move on to the new issues. And now to be confronted with these financial issues, uh, I think that they, I agree with you. He he knew a long time ago that was going to be the issue. He started handing out the cash and it was smart, even though he was criticized for it, handing out cash to citizens 
cutting taxes at the pump, uh, reducing tolls, those are the appropriate things to do at this time coming out of a pandemic. To you know, to knock off the the, the sitting government, which is always a, mo- a monumental task for any government yes. in any province, whatever. Uh, yes, John, do you have to do something bold, something that people can say, "Wow, that's that's different." Yeah, that I could go for that. I don't know that the Liberals and the NDP have done that. Maybe the closest is Del Duca's idea about, uh, you know, a dollar fare, a buck a ride, you know, for transit for a period of, year. I guess, until 2024. Uh, but is that enough to make people say, whoa? Uh, because I, the biggest challenge I think the Liberals have here is a lot of the voters, most of the voters in this province just abandoned them in the last election. And a lot of it yes. had to do with the, 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 they didn't like Kathleen Wynne, they didn't like what she was doing, et cetera. Uh, and you always ask yourself when that happens, how much time are they going to spend in the penalty box before the voters are going to give them a chance? Uh, Del Duca is re- still relatively unknown. Uh, so they're going to try to build, I guess, more on, on policy than they are on the individual. As right. you say, as a sitting premier, the, the PCs feel comfortable pushing uh, Doug Ford out there and saying, OK, you know, because there are some people, especially in the areas where he's strong in rural Ontario, that are gravitating to that. But I, I'm I'm looking for something bold and something revolutionary from from the Liberals and the NDP that are going to have people talking uh, instead of talking about what the government's doing. I'm not so sure we've seen that yet. No, we haven't seen it yet. Now we we still have to the advanced polls at least a couple of weeks. Um, but I look to the federal election. People were furious with uh, Justin Trudeau for calling an election during a pandemic in order to try to get uh, a majority government. And, and he went into that election behind uh, the, the Conservatives, and yet he was able to win the election. So I think that along with affordability, so first of all, I think in normal times, you're absolutely right. It's pretty tough to knock off a sitting government, and they have to do something egregious. But again, Doug Ford is already has a perception that, oh, that's just a Doug Ford. Like he just, oh, whatever he does, uh, he's going to, he, the negative is not going to stick to him. And the liberal uh, tagline, Ontario can be a place to grow if we make the right choices. He's, he's making it about us doing something, uh, we the voters, and yes, during an election, we the voters have this decision, but there's nothing sparkling. As you said, there's nothing outstanding. There's nothing striking. I always think in politics, the difficulty, so a brand, for example, can think of something new to do. When we think of little tiny brands, when we think of Uber, we now know everything about Uber, but before Uber was Uber, what did they do to suddenly attract the attention of the public? Well, they competed against a a taxi system that had a number of flaws and they just hammered away at that. I don't think Stephen Del Duca has enough time to hammer away at the weaknesses of Doug Ford. It's too short a period. He's too, he's a leader only been in place for a few months. I think the next time around, uh, he might have a better opportunity because the, the, one of the things political parties are starting to do is that if the person doesn't win the election immediately, they, they dump them. And I think that's a big mistake. You need to build up somebody's credibility and give them a chance to get known by the public. But I think in terms of, the overall campaign promise. There's nothing, and I agree with you, nothing striking in the liberal or new democratic policies. Again, they're both using, or new Democrats are saying they broke it, we'll fix it. The problem is that means you're making me think of the progressive conservatives again. And in competitive advertising or or making comparisons to the leader, you're actually advertising for the leader every time you refer to them. 
Exactly. So I got a hundred more questions for you, but our time is is, is up this time okay. around. So we have to we have to do a return on this, Joanne, because we want to yes, make please. sure that we cover all the bases on this. Thanks so much for today. Really enjoyed the conversation. Hey, thanks, Bill. Talk to you soon. You betcha. Dr. Joanne McNeish, Associate Professor of Marketing with the Toronto Metropolitan University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Hey, uh, big event in Russia, uh, Victory Day in Russia with the military show force, etc., etc. A couple of days ago, his horse is long over. There was a lot of anticipation that uh, Vladimir Putin may use the occasion to uh, actually declare war against Ukraine. He didn't do that. And there are certain reasons why uh, even declaring war is, is something they were considering. He also was concerned that, that maybe what was going to happen here, there could be an increase in troop movements. Uh, he said nothing about that. As a matter of fact, uh, one of the things I think surprised an awful lot of the pundits was he didn't even mention Ukraine in by name through all of his comments. But uh, there does seem to be an increase in uh, military activity uh, by the Russians in the last 48 hours or so. Russia has fired uh, hypersonic missiles at the Ukrainian city of Odessa after the Victoria Day observance. Charles de la Desma has some details. Ukraine's vital Black Sea port of Odessa came under repeated missile attack on Monday night, including from some hypersonic missiles. The Ukrainian military says Russian forces fired seven missiles from the air at the city, hitting a shopping centre and a warehouse. Officials say one person was killed and at least five were wounded. The strikes come after Russian President Vladimir Putin marked his country's biggest patriotic holiday without giving new information about the war in Ukraine. I'm Charles de la Desma. So uh, what is the strategy uh, that, that Putin seems to be employing here? And uh, what's the end game here? Joining us to talk about this is, uh, of course, Oral Brown, who is a professor of international relations and a senior member of the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto. Professor, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for the time today. Thank you. Were you surprised uh, when Putin was making his comments uh, in, in Red Square that, that there was no mention of Ukraine by name and he didn't talk about escalation, didn't talk about declaring war? Uh, he simply talked about Russian dominance and, and the reason he was there. I think he, he reiterated uh, one of the reasons he's given uh, for this, of course, saying that Russia has given a preemptive response to aggression. It was forced to do so uh, because of NATO activity. That seems to be the message that he's sticking to. But nothing about escalation. What do we read into that? Is is he trying to shy away from this simply because of the, the Russians are not making the kind of progress that he thought they might? We are back to what used to be called Kremlinology, uh, which was a kind of reading of tea leaves, looking at who's on the podium, uh, what are the facial expressions. So there has been a huge amount of speculation, and this is why it is so important to stand back and try to always see the bigger picture. It's difficult to do that, but it's, it's essential because we have such an enormous amount of information that proves not to be valid, and uh, so we need to have that kind of context. It was uh, the case here that sometimes what is not said may be as important as what is said. So the fact that he did not declare victory, the fact that he did not name Ukraine uh, itself, the fact uh, that uh, he did not call for a mobilization of uh, Russian forces. These were all elements that tell us that there are issues that obviously Vladimir Putin has to face Things are not going well. If you looked at his appearance, he seemed somber. He lacked energy. He seemed to lack the usual uh, confidence. At the same time, he was doubling down that this was a war of necessity, not one of choice. 
And I thought what was interesting was how he played up the NATO role. I mean, he did talk about Ukraine indirectly by saying, look, we had to face a situation where uh, in Kiev they wanted to get uh, nuclear weapons, which, of course, is absolutely untrue. Uh, and that we were faced with uh, the possibility that uh, the allies of this Nazi or neo-Nazi government in Kiev were preparing for an invasion of the historic lands. So this was going back to the Soviet lexicon of claiming always that whatever Russia does is by definition defensive. The Soviet Union could never commit any act of aggression because by definition it was peaceful. So when the Soviet Union invaded Czechoslovakia in 1968, their top jurors came out and said that the Czechoslovak people will forever be grateful for the fraternal help that Russia has given them and they will never forget. They did not understand the irony. The Czechoslovak people never forgot or forgave Russia. And I think that's what's happening in Ukraine as well. But this is kind of pretense. And so it's building up NATO as this unrelenting aggressive enemy that is supporting a neo-Nazi entity in Kiev. And Russia has no choice but to defend itself. And this is this kind of mystical and mythical picture that Vladimir Putin tries to uh, create. And of course, it doesn't sell in the West. It's very important that we reject that because it is so uh, untrue. But it is something that he is directing at a domestic audience. Let me talk, I want to talk about that in just a second. At the beginning here, Professor, we talked about whether or not he was actually going to declare war against Ukraine. And as you say, right now, he's, he's not calling it that at all. Uh, but my understanding is if he does go through that formality, that gives him, uh, from the special military operation to that, uh, there can be call-ups, there can be reserves, there can be con conscription, which might be something they will be considering. Obviously, they haven't acted on it yet, but they've lost an awful lot of soldiers and uh, and, and a, lot, a lot of faith, faith, I guess, because of what's going on here. Do they need to reinvigorate and, and, and restock uh, the, the Russian military? I'm not suggesting they're running out of soldiers, but I mean, this is this is exacting quite a price against the Russian army. They are taking very heavy losses. Within a short time, they lost more troops than they lost during the 10-year engagement in Afghanistan. And this is beginning to percolate uh, the news throughout Russia, because not only do you have the losses of uh, ordinary conscripts in some cases uh, and low-level professional soldiers, but there has been a remarkably large number of generals who were lost, and they will have really elaborate funerals and announcements in local papers, so it's very difficult to hide that. And this was one of the elements in the Vladimir Putin speech, that he didn't want to seem to be escalating this matter. They don't call it the war, they call it the special military operation. He's trying to stick to that. He is weary about creating the impression that Russia is not doing well, because if he had to declare war, if he had to mobilize more troops and do this publicly, that would send an indication that, one, this is a war, and second, Russia is not doing sufficiently well two and a half months later, because the modus operandi of Russia has been to move in quickly and crush the opposition. And of course, that happens when there was not much opposition, as in the case of Georgia in 2008 or Crimea in 2014. That is not what hap has happened here. Now, what I thought was also significant, that by 
playing up the role of NATO and claiming that NATO is encircling uh, Russia and that this is a, this larger threat, it may also give Vladimir Putin a kind of self-created off-ramp because it would be much easier for him to try to reach some sort of compromise should he choose to do so if he says we have to compromise because we are faced with 30 countries in NATO that are pressuring us. We are facing much of the Western world uh, or the democratic world, including Japan and Singapore and uh, Australia and New Zealand that are uh, boycotting our goods. And that is why we have to find some kind of peaceful solution rather than to admit that the mighty Red Army is being defeated by a bunch of neo-Nazis in uh, relatively smaller Ukraine. How frustrating would it have been, though, Professor, for Putin as they were preparing for the the Victory Day celebrations? Uh, And by the way, I I guess we're not surprised at all that he brought up the neo-Nazi aspect of the Ukraine government, uh, that that claim anyway, because Victory Day in itself is about the Russians defeating uh, Nazis uh, back in World War II. So I'm not surprised he made that connection. But you mentioned that you know he there were no victories and and that had to be frustrated i'm sure he wanted to be able to brag and say you know we've taken mariupol well they haven't uh, they it, it may be inevitable that that happens but not yet uh, there's no timeline in other words he didn't really have a whole lot to brag about did he this is why what happens on the ground is so important that yes sanctions are essential and they will have a negative a corrosive effect on the russian economy but, but that happens over a very long time. What occurs on the ground, the losses of forces, the denial of victory, the continued support of the West, this is what's wearing Russia down. This is what is demonstrating that the corruption that is so pervasive throughout Russian society has also reached into the Russian military. That all that money that was spent by, by Vladimir Putin, something like $700 billion over 10 years, a good deal of it has been wasted. Uh, it has been stolen. Equipment that is in storage is unusable because parts have been stolen. So this army is not performing, despite uh, the fact that they have some hypersonic missiles and some very capable aircraft. Uh, they even have to cancel the flyover, supposedly because of weather. Although when I was looking uh, at the, the videos, it seemed to be clear skies. So they need the aircraft in Ukraine. They have not been able to achieve control and even complete their superiority over Ukraine. So Western support is essential. It has to be amped up. We are at an inflection point. This is the uh, window where Ukraine may have an opportunity to really turn things around, to push the Russians at least back to the lines prior to February 24th. But this window may close uh, pretty quickly. And the West needs to be engaged because it tells us how important this is for everyone. Just think about it. When on uh, uh, the day that they're celebrating victory in the Second World War, Russia is saying that the Western democracies are allied with a neo-Nazi government, then this is a rewriting of history that is such an affront and an offense to all those people in Britain and elsewhere who died defending democracy. Before Russia was in a war, well, Russia uh, had uh, signed onto the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, and they in Nazi Germany divided Poland. Britain stood alone and fought the Battle of of, of Britain, mm-hmm. and uh, people in Britain and elsewhere who lost uh, lives and treasure 
to fight Nazism now are being told that they are collaborators with the Nazi regime? Very strange. Professor, one of your contemporaries, uh, when uh, Professor Phillips O'Brien, a professor of strategic studies at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland, tweeted that uh, Russia has not won this war. In fact, it's starting to lose it. He went on to say, unless Russia has a major breakthrough, the balance of advantages will shift steadily in favor of Ukraine. Do you agree with that assessment? It can. I think that assessment is correct, provided that Ukraine keeps getting the heavy weapons that it needs. They need artillery and counter-artillery. They need electronics and they need continued real-time intelligence. So nothing is predetermined. The possibilities are there. But uh, uh, at the same time that we uh, need to be wary of overestimating Russian capability, because this was one of the uh, elements in intimidating the West, and this is why we did not help Ukraine early on. It would have been possibly a very different situation had significant supplies of armaments gone to Ukraine prior to the invasion, may even have deterred Russia. At the same time now, we also have to understand that Russia still has capabilities, that Vladimir Putin is not only reckless with the lives of Ukrainians, but he is willing to sacrifice the lives of many Russians. And consequently, a quantity sometimes, uh, as Stalin said, has a kind of quality all of its own. And uh, if uh, Ukraine is not able to maintain the current momentum, it can turn. So we are at a point both of opportunity, but also of significant danger. And with that in mind, is there a concern right now that uh, that Putin may in fact escalate, even though he didn't talk about it earlier this week? You know, Some people are surprised that he hasn't gone full force against the supply chain from essentially Poland into Ukraine, where those heavy weapons are coming from. Uh, others are, are still concerned about the nuclear capability. Uh, as you mentioned, Putin's very unpredictable in a situation like that, it, 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 and, and it's not going the way he wants it to. Uh, might he pull out that wild card? We cannot exclude any possibilities, but I would think it's unlikely. It's unlikely because in the case of nuclear weapons, he understands that that can very quickly escalate to an all-out nuclear conflict, and no one will win that, and uh, Russia would cease to exist and so with much of the West. And he is not some suicidal, fanatical theocrat. He's a corrupt kleptocrat who wants to enjoy his wealth and his benefits. And in terms of other kinds of escalation, such as attacking supply lines within uh, Poland and elsewhere, uh, I think it's a little bit too late for him to do that because the Russian army has already been degraded to a level where he certainly cannot now try to fight an enlarged conflict directly involving NATO since two, two and a half months rather have passed by and more troops have been deployed, more American troops uh, have been deployed. Uh, there's been more training uh, in Eastern Europe. So in some ways he lost that uh, opportunity, but he is trying to hit supply lines within Ukraine. He is trying to terrorize every part of Ukraine in launching missiles at uh, Odessa, it's not just that he's attacking a sense of the port, but the message is no one is safe in Ukraine anywhere, and uh, that Ukraine should not have the ability to move troops from the west to the east to support uh, an offensive in the east where Ukraine needs to recapture uh, some of the lost territory, and especially in the south. Ukraine needs to get back that territory, otherwise Russia will continue to press to try to 
deny Ukraine access to the Black Sea, that will be catastrophic for Ukraine. Uh, very quickly, you mentioned about the message to Russians, of course, and that's something always Putin has tried to do here. During the victory celebrations, as you know, uh, somebody hacked into the Russian TV uh, and actually jumped in there, and there's a video that actually ran on Russian TV. It says, you have blood of thousands of Ukrainians and hundreds of dead children on your hands. The TV and the authorities are lying. No to war. Now, of course, it was quickly taken down. Uh, by authorities. But it does indicate, I guess, uh, Professor, that uh, there are a number of people within Russia right now that aren't buying the message that Putin's given. And and I know some people that have been protesting have already been arrested in situations like that, which may account partly anyway for the sullen mood, mood rather, that he seemed to have uh, during those celebrations. The nature of dissent, this is what we have learned in studies of dissent in Eastern Europe, in Russia during communism, is that it starts relatively small. It is a a group of individuals who are remarkably brave, take on grave risks, and often pay a very heavy personal price, like Václav Havel. But it then resonates gradually within the rest of the population, and then it generates its own momentum. And then the system begins to crack, and then it quickly collapses. This is why dictatorships, as I think I mentioned before on your show, tend to look strong and stable until all of a sudden they are no longer strong and stable because there are things happening underneath that we don't see immediately, but they are having a continuous effect. And we are seeing some of that, but it doesn't always lead to a collapse, but it can. And uh, if you are in the Kremlin, these are worrying signs. And uh, you're quite right that uh, there are these cyber uh, uh, interventions that must be distributed to the Kremlin. And, and a couple of journalists, uh, for instance, went on the air and denounced uh, Putin's war. So these are uh, worrisome signs for Vladimir Putin. And this is one of the reasons why he also tried to look compassionate, the father figure, saying to the Russian people, well, I will make sure that the families of those who have lost loved ones are well taken care of. Exactly. Uh, Professor, we'll have to leave it there. Time is our enemy, as usual. Thank you, as always, for your great insight into this. I appreciate our conversation. Take care. Thank you. Take care. That's Professor Earl Brown, of course, from uh, University of Toronto. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's talk about what's on everybody's mind. Uh, here in Ontario, uh, the election, of course, is June 2nd. Uh, Quebec's going to be going through an election a little bit later on, too. And uh, everybody's talking about, well, the cost of living. In other words, affordability. It has rocketed to the number one spot, not surprisingly. I mean, just look at what we've had to endure and tolerate and, uh, well, you know, hopefully survive uh, over the last little while. The price of gasoline, the price of groceries, the price of just about everything is skyrocketing these days. And uh, the politicians, as is their want, of course, during elections campaign, are, are promising the sun, the moon, and the stars to try to address this. But realistically, what can they do and what can what can happen to change the circumstance that we find ourselves in? Uh, please do welcome back to the program Moshe Landa, who is a senior economist lecturer with uh, Concordia University. And Moshe, always a pleasure. I'm glad you could join us today. Thanks for the time. Always my pleasure. Let's uh, sh- separate the, the promises from the realities here. You know, in past elections, we've had politicians say, I'm going to lower the cost of hydro. I'm going to lower the price of gasoline. I'm going to lower just about everything and give you lots more money. I mean, that's what the politicians do. And I think we're pretty much on to that. But realistically, when you're in an economic situation like this, 
which I think you and others have described as almost a perfect storm of economic circumstances. What can elected officials do realistically to try to address this? They can solve any one problem that they want, but they're very likely going to create another problem as kind of the unintended consequence. So, you know, if you're looking at the government to say that we're going to reduce your taxes as a way to try and help alleviate some of your uh, your your constraints, then that just means they're going to run bigger deficits, which means that at some point in the future, they're going to raise those taxes back or cut spending, right? So solve one problem, create another. Well, yeah, and the other side of that course is, um, you know, or, or reduce programs, which probably will have no effect on your life until you, somebody you know or you yourself need those programs. You say, well, 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 we had to reduce costs. And and this is the thing that I always find frustrating about this. We, we want this government and subsequent governments to address this economic crisis, do something about this stagflation, do something about rising interest rates, but don't raise my taxes to do it. Okay, so as long as somebody else can pay for it, we've got to come to grips and understand that we've got to be realistic about government expectations here, don't we? Yeah, and I think that's because we view the government as if it's an actual living, breathing entity like you and I are, right? So when we say, well, the government can solve that, we have to remember that at the end of the day, that is an entity that's funded by taxpayers. And so when we're saying that we want the government to fix problems, you're right. We're saying that we want other taxpayers to fix my problems, but everybody's got problems. So we're basically looking at everybody else saying, okay, so you fix my problems. And they're saying, no, you fix my problems. And I mean, that's what makes elections interesting right, is that each of these parties is basically saying who should be the party responsible for fixing the other person's problems and which ones uh, are, are the more serious problems. But the, the reality is that we, we kind of need to look at ourselves and say, all right, what can we do to solve our over-indebtedness? Or what can we do to solve uh, the fact that housing is not affordable to us as opposed to others? Or whatever it is that we view as being our top issue. But when we say that it's the government that needs to solve it, we're, we're fundamentally missing out on the idea that that government is is us. And we have to be, I, I guess, realistic and expect it. You know, there's going to be a little pain involved here. I mean, you can't get, you know, if, if you have to get a tooth pulled, it's going to hurt a little bit, no matter how much freezing they put in there. Uh, and that's just the reality here. And we're going to have to understand that there has to be a little pain if we're going to get this gain. But when you say they can do one thing, and you're absolutely right, for every action, there's a reaction uh, that they probably don't consider because most politicians, and I'm not trying to be overly cynical here, uh, don't look long term. I mean, they look for the, you know, I'm going to give you immediate relief here, Moshe, and you're going to be fine and you're going to think I've, I've done a great job. What happens two or three years down the road? Well, that's after the, that's the next election. I'll worry about that then. But there don't seem to be a whole lot of uh, ready solutions that are going to address an awful lot of these problems, uh, except for a change in some of the the global circumstances, really. I mean, I, I know everybody wants to blame politicians for the price of gasoline, for instance. And you can look at the taxes and everything, but they don't really do a whole lot to control the, the world price of oil, do they? No. And, and you know, the fact is that it, it's not even just that it's, it's being dictated by supply issues. It's also demand issues. It's how yeah. addicted are we to our cars, right? Um, when you say to somebody, hey, you want to avoid high gas prices, start taking public transport, they laugh and say, no, but seriously, what, what, what can be done, right? So even there, right, what can politicians do? If you want them to try and fix a public, uh, public transport, well, that costs money. And so there's taxes that have to come out of that as well. So yeah, it's, it's either going to be circumstances that are beyond the government's control or the way that they're going to have to control it is going to require more spending. And so as counterintuitive as it is to reduce spending, they have to spend more. It's almost this sort of bizarre situation in which 
we, we can't understand what their various options are and, and how they can go about fixing it. We just say, just do something. Anything is better than doing nothing because doing nothing makes it look like they're not taking the problem seriously. It's interesting to say, okay, who are we going to turn to? And I mean, right now, there, there is no government technically because the, 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 the legislature was was uh, dissolved. But I'm reading some of the, the background articles about this, and we tend to lean towards some political parties for certain solutions, right? I mean, you know, if we want to do something about poverty, well, oftentimes, well, let's see what the NDP did, because they seem to be a party that's socially motivated. We, I guess we do this in, in every walk of life, though. We, we pretty much pigeonhole parties, don't we? Invariably, uh, we've seen this happen time and time again in different polling federally and provincially, Canadians seem to think that a conservative, small-c conservative party, is is the better party to lean on when it comes to economic issues. You know, uh, liberals for some health care, NDP for social issues and things like that. So does that, for instance, in Ontario, give uh, Doug Ford and the PCs almost a, 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 an advantage psychologically because they know that th- this is where people are going to look to us first? It could. It could also be their weak point, right? Because yeah. we're, we might look towards the conservative government as being good on economic issues. The issues right now that we're experiencing, would you define them as being economics or would they be social issues, right? So if we say that inflation is disproportionately affecting low-income Canadians, if we say that the, the problems that we're seeing at the grocery store are affecting uh, certain segments of society, then this might actually be the type of thing that the NDP is capable of solving better than the Conservatives. Uh, and the other issue that might be counting against the Conservatives in this case is incumbency. So voters tend to have this terrible, terrible behavior where they associate whatever the current state of the economy is to whatever particular party is in power at the time of that state of the economy. So if we look and say the economy is a real mess, and the Conservatives are in power at the time of this real mess, then I guess it must be the Conservatives that are responsible for this mess when, like you said, it's a lot of circumstances that are beyond any party's control. So uh, it, they, they could be in a good position if they can keep the election focused on uh, this is an economics problem that requires economic solutions and who better than us. The NDP and the Liberals should be saying, no, 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 this is a low income and a social uh, problem. And that's uh, that's us. And that the situation we're in right now uh, is worse than it should have been if it hadn't been the Conservatives in power, right? And I think that if I'm advising any of those parties, those are the things I'd fill their heads with. You know what I'm noticing too, not just in this Ontario election now, but I mean, even last year in the federal election, voters have long, long memories. And and if we don't have long memories, uh, the opposition parties make sure that we don't forget some issues. And that's already starting to, to rear its head here in Ontario where the, the PCs and the NDP are both saying, hey, you, the Liberals are the ones that jacked up your energy prices. Remember, that was the Dalton McGuinney government, and that was their you know, investment at the time you know, in, into alternative sources of energy, and, and it was going to come off of our, our hydro bills, and uh, it didn't work out so well, and the bills skyrocketed, and they're still high, so that's the Liberals' fault. And the NDP, well, they're going back all the way to 1990. Uh, 1901, and Bob Ray took over as, as premier of this province and said, look at the economic mess that he left. Well, that was a, a recession that went on, and they wore that. Yeah, they, they started deficits, well, increased the deficits, but they hammered that away. And I guess that really just kind of fortifies some of these stereotypes that we have about political parties, isn't it? Absolutely. And it becomes really difficult then for parties to change their spots, right? So, you know, the, the federal liberals had to really kind of shift ground during the Chrétien years to try and distance themselves from the father Trudeau liberals, right? And to try and kind of grab that center ground. And, and you know, even there, 
they were subsequently blamed for taking the center ground and for abandoning their traditional liberal ground kind of to the to the left of center rather than center. So it, it kind of works in both directions that even when you do try to change your spots, the, the fact is that that in itself could be accused as being a weakness, that you're not committed to anything and that you don't stand by what you really believe. And uh, it, it, it's it's a game of just name calling that that really turns a lot of people off of politics and it distracts from being able to discuss the the real economic issues and how they're going to be addressed by which policies are the best rather than which parties are best equipped to to implement those policies and again you're right because especially when you look at federal governments i mean historically uh conservative governments small c conservative governments don't do a very good job on the economy and and it, it tends to be a problem. I mean, the best uh, example, I guess, is, is the deficits that are happening right now. I mean, Paul Martin was the guy that really rescued the Gretchen government when he was the finance minister, uh, a great finance minister, not, so very, not such a good prime minister. But he wrestled those years and years of deficits, and actually we had 10 years of surpluses, but not without a lot of pain. And, and, uh, and you know, we all had to suck it up just a little bit. And that, that's the cost. And I don't know if, if psychologically, uh, Moshe, we're ready for that. We've already endured enough. And I know, I've talked to a lot of voters over the last couple of days that said, look, it, I've paid a price for the last two years, all the crap that went on here. I'm not ready to go and, and you know, be the, the one who's going to have to pay the heavy price now to get out of this thing. That's up to government. Now, that's probably an unfair conclusion to make, but it's the conclusion a lot of voters are making now. Yeah. And I, I think that one of the problems is that any party that's running right now is able to make those crazy promises without having to cost them out. At the federal level, the the creation of the Parliamentary Budget Office, which was based on a, a similar office in the US, at least says that, look, anytime that you make a promise, cost it out. Show us exactly how you're going to pay for it. Give us some sort of projection as to where the money's going to come from, who's going to be the one that has to pay, who's going to be the one that benefits from these sorts of uh, these policies. And at least then that if the voter wants to inform themselves, then they can at least look at the scenario and say, all right, this is what it means for us now. This is what it means for us five, 10 years from now. And that kind of helps out the story. But we don't have that at the provincial level. There's nobody watching the various parties right now that are making these promises uh, and saying, what, what's the true cost? Not what are your crazy projections that you're using to try and flatter voters, but what does an independent arm's length uh, government office say this is really going to end up costing? That would help allow the parties to, to maybe change their spots, to move towards the middle ground and to offer policies that actually could be a way out uh, with a bit of a long-term vision. Yeah, I mean, I, it, was, it was the Harper government that created the, the the parliamentary budget office, wasn't it? Yeah, and and take a take a real look at that 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 particular government with their view of transparency and openness uh, creating it. But but that, that's exactly it. It's it, it, any party can do it. Any party can offer to set that thing up, and it's exactly the type of thing that allows then for people that want to be informed to understand what are, what are the real numbers involved here, not what are the the projections of the parties based on you know pie in the sky uh, forecasts well and that was part of the the, uh, the the reality i guess the harper government created it kevin page was the first guy to get the gig and uh, they, they he became a mortal enemy of the harper government because he he kind of laid the numbers out there and, and it was not the, the message that the, the conservatives wanted to get out there so and we've got you know a bunch of people in different provinces that do that sort of thing let me ask you i know we're almost out of time but on a, uh, when you look at the the big picture here Moshe. Uh, and we talked about, yeah, you know, there's the world price of oil and, and the, the the war in Ukraine is having an impact on this. Uh, and, and these are all contributory factors. They're probably well out of the control of, for instance, people in the provincial government. Uh, but, but there are some, as they say, green shoots in the economy. Employment, Unemployment numbers are way down. 
there seems to be some hope here. Would it be naive for some parties to say, look, this is going to look after itself uh, as soon as the war stops and, and we can get some of these other things under control? Or is it going to take some drastic government action to, to, to move us in that direction? No, I, th- I think that if there were a party that came out that said, you're right, that there are a lot of positives here and our role, if elected, is going to be to lay the groundwork to take advantage of it once things beyond our control settle themselves. I, I think that there's the potential that that could be attractive, right? It- it's acknowledging, hey, there's a problem. It's acknowledging that, look, we can't do anything about it. And anybody who tries to tell you otherwise is uh, is misleading you, but what we can do is at least be ready for when we can do something, and here's how we're going to do that. Uh, you know, again, transparency and openness is usually what voters want to hear, not empty promises that uh, then create political rhetoric on the other side of the election that, well, here's why we can't do what we promised. Exactly. Well, we'll see what rolls out here in Ontario and, of course, in Quebec later on, too, and uh, what kind of promises are made and what ones are kept over the next little while. Always a pleasure, Moshe. Thanks so much for this. We really appreciate our conversation today. Anytime. Moshe, of course, is a uh, senior economics lecturer at Concordia University up in Montreal. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.